content of this program is intended for people who are blind and print impaired. Hello and welcome to our November 2023 edition of Heard Any Good Books Lately? A program from the North Carolina Reading Service. I'm George Douglas. This program is brought to you by the Friends of the State Library of North Carolina, Accessible Books and Library Services, an organization of citizens, volunteers, and patrons all interested in supporting the library and the services it provides. The Friends Group was founded in 1989 and now has more than 300 members across North Carolina. If you'd like to join the Friends Group yourself, we'll have information on how to do that later in this program. The program is all about books available from the State Library of North Carolina, Accessible Books and Library Services. The library has more than 86,000 titles in its collection. Books and magazines are available in large print, braille, and talking books as well. The library also has more than 11,000 patrons across the state. And if you're not a patron but are interested in becoming one, I'll have more information at the end of this program as well. This month, we'll look at some of the most popular books checked out in the month of October at the State Library of North Carolina, Accessible Books and Library Services. Let's begin the program this time with a look at a new book, a Tom Clancy Jack Ryan novel entitled Red Winter by Mark Cameron. Here's the plot for this one. Not too many months after dispatching a tricky submarine issue in the hunt for Red October, young Jack Ryan faces a deadly East German foe. The trouble starts in 1985 near Area 51 in Nevada, where UFO believers witness a flash in the night sky and anticipate an extraterrestrial visit. Only the East German spy who happens to be among them suspects an earthly explanation. A woman guides him through a mountainous area where he discovers the remains of a U.S. military aircraft he correctly presumes to be beyond big in importance. Making off with a small piece of the wing he must somehow smuggle across the Iron Curtain, he leaves a trail of dead and wounded in his wake. The U.S. suspects that someone has removed a piece of secret radar-absorbing material from the wreckage. Meanwhile, in West Berlin, a low-level foreign service officer is asked to meet a possible defector, an encounter that takes a terrible turn. Meanwhile, this story has lots of meanwhiles. The East German aeronautical physicist Dr. U. Hauptmann is doing important research on radar-absorbing surfaces. The CIA suspects it has a mole, whom they codename Fleddermouse, Jack Ryan and Mary Pat Foley cross through Checkpoint Charlie into East Berlin and bypass the anti-fascist protection rampart, known to us bourgeoisie as the Berlin Wall. There they face a peck of trouble, but luckily Ryan wasn't exactly a neophyte when it came to hairy situations, nor is Foley to be mistaken for a shrinking violet. 
Cameron is but one of the authors who so skillfully maintains the Clancy legacy that began in the 1980s. The many characters are all spot on, the scope is wide-ranging, and the action reaches to the dreaded Hoshenshirshausen prison. Readers are guaranteed to hate the freckle-faced guard Nitzi Graf as much as they will admire Ryan and Foley. So well adapted to the entire series, this cook, this book could easily have been the late Tom Clancy's second novel. Once again, it's a Tom Clancy Jack Ryan novel entitled Red Winter, written by Mark Cameron. Now another popular author each month here on the program. It's David Baldacci, and this is a book entitled Simply Lies. Here's the plot for this one. Motherhood is no barrier to crime-busting in this clever thriller. Mickey Gibson is an ex-crime scene tech, ex-cop, ex-detective, and a single mother of two tykes, including one who's been known to throw up on her. She works at home as an investigator for Pro-I, chasing down criminals online, and she's quite good at it. Her ex-hubby, the rat, had said he wanted a big family, but bugged out on her when the daddy-do list ruined his weekends. Now a phone call turns her life upside down. A woman she doesn't know, ostensibly from Pro-I, asks her to do some field work, inventory the contents of an old mansion. The woman at first goes by Arlene, but she might really be Clarice or Francine. In other words, she's a liar, plain and simple, and she has strong motivation to get Mickey involved. Naturally, the contents of the mansion include a murder victim, a smelly corpse that had once been a criminal on a global scale. Mickey feels compelled to solve the crime, though she's empathetically told it's not your job to solve this sucker. You're not a cop anymore. More murders follow as the possibility of a hidden treasure looms. Two strong, engaging women drive the complicated plot for this one, the multitasking mom who's compelled to solve a crime while defending against threats to her children, and the childless manipulator who has her own big-time personal issues. She, let's call her Clarice for now, has the best lines. Hell, with just the right eyeliner, I can rule the world. And... Life was a shell game. The winners could just hide the truth better than everybody else. And she has a lot to hide. In the end, the plot elements are all tied up in a neat little bow. More good fun from a master storyteller. That was Simply Lies, and it's by David Baldacci. <laughs> Now we have a couple of books uh, this month that are from the 
very popular author James Patterson. He's always on the top ten list. We're going to talk about two of them right now. The first one is called Cross Down, an Alex Cross and John Sampson thriller by James Patterson. The number one New York Times bestseller, Alex Cross, is gravely injured. Only his partner and friend, John Sampson, can keep him safe and get justice. For the first time, John Sampson is on his own. The brilliant crime-solving duo of Washington, D.C.'s Metro PD and the FBI has a proven M.O. Detective Alex Cross makes his own rules. Detective John Sampson enforces them. When military-style attacks erupt, brutally sidelining Cross, Samson is sent reeling. The patterns are too random. Samson's friend, his partner, his brother, have told him, Don't trust anyone. As a shadow force advances on the nation's capital, Samson alone must protect the Cross family, his own young daughter, and every American, including the president. Once again, this one is called Cross Down. It's an Alex Cross and John Sampson thriller by James Patterson. And now the next book here uh, associated with James Patterson is called Obsessed, and it's a Michael Bennett psychological thriller by Patterson. A superstitious killer targeting young women in every borough of New York City has Detective Michael Bennett facing his most terrifying case since Step on a Crack. Here's the plot. Aboard a police boat on the Hudson River, Detective Michael Bennett casts a wary eye into the cold, rough water. NYPD is searching for a murder victim, a young college student. They find her tossed in the dark waves, dressed for a night out in a sparkly black gown. The gruesome sight fills Bennett with the dread only a father could fathom. As the obsessive killer extends his spree, a pattern emerges, one that Bennett's eldest daughter fits to a disturbing degree. Now NYPD's top detective must lure the murderer into the light of day, before the next deadly strike lands closer to home than Bennett could ever bear, as a parent or as a protector. Once again, it's called Obsessed, a Michael Bennett psychological thriller by James Patterson. Now let's take a look at a book that has just recently been turned into a movie. It is called Killers of the Flower Moon, The Osage Murders and the Birth of the FBI by David Gran. The book's true triumph is Gran's thorough, earnestly compelling exploration of a labyrinthian conspiracy glossed over by a uniquely American case of historical amnesia. David Gran, the author of 2009's much-lauded The Lost City of Z, brings new light to the old evils in Killers of the Flower Moon. His latest work of narrative nonfiction examines one of the darkest chapters in United States history, 
the Prohibition Era, Reign of Terror, a systematic slaying of the Osage people for their oil royalty head rights. His writing on the topic is succinct yet artful. One would expect no less of a staff writer at the New Yorker. However, the book's true triumph is Grand's thorough, earnestly compelling exploration of a labyrinthian conspiracy glossed over by a uniquely American case of historical amnesia. In 1870, under threat of duress, the Osage had sold their lands in Kansas to settlers and purchased new territory in what is now known as Osage County, Oklahoma. It was a rocky and rather desolate place, but the never-ending flow of white settlers soon pushed into this land as well. The Osage were forced to contend once more with manifest destiny, which culminated in the federal government's mandate for allotment of reservation real estate. To protect themselves from being cheated, Osage leaders successfully negotiated with government officials to partition their land exclusively among members of the tribe, as well as give them full ownership of the mineral rights. When prospectors came out to drill for oil, they leased plots of land from the tribe, and the enormous oil reservoirs these plots were found to be sitting on top of a lead sitting on top of led to the Osage becoming very, very rich. True to form, the United States government couldn't bear to have a people that disenfranchised become some of the wealthiest in the nation. So in 1921, Congress passed a law requiring each Osage to have a court-appointed white guardian oversee their fortune. Most of these guardians were prominent local figures like politicians and businessmen, while some were the white spouses of tribe members. The latter was the case of Molly Burkhart, an Osage woman whose narrative is central to Killers of the Flower Moon. She lost all three of her sisters and their elderly mother to the reign of terror, along with countless other friends and acquaintances. These murder cases were neglected by local law enforcement officials who were either poorly trained, racist, corrupt, or some combination of the three. Yet rather than flee the county, as so many other Osage had done, Molly hired private investigators. When they failed, the tribe turned to the federal government for help. A fledgling agency then known as the Bureau of Investigations and its young director, J. Edgar Hoover, who was determined to carve out a place for his department as well as make a name for himself, stepped up to investigate the crimes against the Osage. The treachery they uncovered was shocking. Official estimates put the death toll at nearly 60 people, but that would hardly be the end of this sordid story. One of the most effective aspects of Killers of the Flower Moon is how Gran writes about his own research for the book. In Chronicle 3, the reporter, 
which occupies little more than an eighth of the text's entirety, he allows the reader to accompany him on his journey to Osage County, where he interviews historians and descendants of those who lived during the Reign of Terror. This final section of the book unpacks the Osage murders, revealing in this decades-old sensational true crime story an indicator of what is and has always been wrong with America. The book was reviewed by Alex Dowbich on April 19, 2017, and once again, the name of the book is The Killers of the Flower Moon, The Osage Murders and the Birth of the FBI by David Gran, and a book that is now being turned into a movie. And you're listening to Heard Any Good Books Lately, an exclusive production of the North Carolina Reading Service. I'm George Douglas. Thanks so much for joining me today. Now, once again on the program for this month, we'll turn back to James Patterson. This is a book entitled The House of Wolves. The murder of a billionaire patriarch triggers a bloody battle for control of his empire. For fans of Succession, Yellowstone, and number one best-selling duo James Patterson and Mike Lupica. Here's the plot for this one. Joe Wolfe applies a cutthroat determination to his life's work, from to building a California business empire to parenting three sons and a daughter. Kill or be killed. So when the patriarch takes a deadly cruise on San Francisco Bay, Joe Wolf's bloodline becomes SFPD's lifeline. Detective Ben Cantor trails the pack of wolves as the siblings vie for control of their legacy of power and assets. All four have the means and the motive to commit murder, but only one of them is most like Joe Wolf. Only one of them earned their father's love. Lurking in the shadows is the real Alpha Wolf. That creature survives on instinct and desire to kill all the wolves dead. Once again, it's called The House of Wolves by James Patterson. Now let's take a look at a book called Hunting Time. It's by Jeffrey Deaver, and this one, too, is an inspiration for an upcoming CBS original series called Tracker. In New York Times bestselling Master of Suspense, Jeffrey Deaver's riveting thriller, reward seeker Coulter Shaw plunges into the woods and races the clock in a case where nothing is quite what it seems. Allison Parker is on the run with her teenage daughter, Hannah, and Coulter Shaw has been hired by her eccentric boss, entrepreneur Marty Harmon, to find and protect her. Though he's an expert at tracking missing persons, even those who don't wish to be found, Shaw has met his match in Allison, who brings all her skills as a brilliant engineer designing revolutionary technology to the game of evading detection. Now, the reason for Allison's panicked flight is soon apparent. She's being stalked by her ex-husband, John Merritt. Newly released from prison and fueled by blinding rage, 
John is a man whose former profession as a police detective makes him uniquely suited for the hunt. And he's not alone. Two hitmen are also hot on her heels, an eerie pair of thugs who take delight not only in murder, but in the sport of devising clever ways to make bodies disappear forever. Even if Shaw manages to catch up with Allison and her daughter, his troubles will just be beginning. As Shaw ventures further into the wilderness, the truth becomes as hard to decipher as the forest's unmarked trails, and peril awaits at every turn. Uh, once again, this is uh, a book that is the inspiration for an upcoming CBS original series called Tracker, and it's called Hunting Time by Jeffrey Deaver. Now, here's a book that was just released in July of this year, 2023, by Debbie McComber. It is called Must Love Flowers, a gentle story of rebirth that focuses on love and partnership as the antidotes to loneliness. A 54-year-old widow who has barely left the house in four years creates a new life for herself. Joan's sample was destroyed when Jared, her husband and soulmate, died unexpectedly of an aneurysm six months before the COVID-19 lockdowns began. And then it was suddenly four years later when she found herself spending all her time on her own, scared to go out, ordering her groceries to be delivered, barely talking to her adult sons, Nick and Steve, spending hours and hours on puzzles. After an angry letter from the Homeowners Association about the state of her yard, Joan finally decides to start making changes. She gets a haircut, hires a landscaper, starts going to counseling and a grief therapy group, and opens up her home to border nursing student Maggie Herbert, who's trying to create some boundaries with her alcoholic father. When Nick drops a puppy off at her door, the complete reversal of the cloistered experience she has been leading since Jared's death is complete. Readers looking for an uplifting story focusing on character growth and newfound happiness will find solace here. The characters and situations fulfill the expectations of a fairy tale. Men are gruff and don't know how to communicate. Women are forgiving, understanding, and hardworking. People are paired off after finding true love. Houses are repaired with hard work and yards made glorious with flowers. A gentle story of rebirth that focuses on love and partnership as antidotes to loneliness. This one is called Must Love Flowers, and it's a brand new book by Debbie McComber. Now here's another book that was just released within the last uh, few months this year. The title will sound familiar to you as well, I think. It's called Where Are the Children Now? by Mary Higgins Clark and Alifair Burke. And this is an expertly twisted se a sequel fully worthy of its celebrated original. How do you extend the work of a deceased author who mostly avoided continuing characters 
Burke, who collaborated with Clark on several novels before her passing, comes up with a most ingenious way. In Where Are the Children, 1975, you may remember that one, Clark's very first novel, Melissa and Mike Eldridge, were kidnapped by their mother's ex-husband a generation later. Melissa is a seasoned prosecutor whose high-profile success in getting the murder conviction of an abused woman vacated launched her on a second career as a true crime podcaster. She's just married geologist Charlie Miller, who's been raising his three-year-old daughter, Riley, by himself since the accidental death of his first wife. Linda is her name, and it happened soon after the girl's birth. History repeats itself in the most traumatic way imaginable three months later when Riley vanishes shortly after Melissa is confronted by an unfamiliar woman at the playground. I know all about you, the stranger had said. You're a fraud and a hypocrite. Since Charlie, who's off on a job in the Caribbean, has a solid alibi, Suffolk County detectives Heather Hall and Guy Marino perversely fasten on Melissa as their most likely suspect. Worse yet, Grant McIntosh, the friend and former colleague Melissa asks to step in as Charlie's lawyer on his return to Long Island, informs her that his responsibility to Charlie limits the help he can provide her and even the contact he can allow between the spouses. And Charlie himself seems ever more distant from Melissa, who feels painfully ripped away not only from her stepdaughter, but from her family, her friends, and her bridegroom. Whom can she possibly trust at this moment of supreme stress? And will her trust be repaid or betrayed? An expertly twisted sequel, fully worthy of its celebrated original. Where are the children now? It's called by Mary Higgins Clark and Alifair Burke. And uh, this is a sequel to that very first book by Mary Higgins Clark back in 1975, which you may remember, Where Are the Children? And we'll conclude the program for today with a very unique book entitled Matchup by Lee Child. Now, this is an incredible follow-up to the New York Times and USA Today bestseller Face-Off. 22 of the world's most popular thriller writers come together for an unforgettable anthology. I think you'll really enjoy this one. Matchup takes the never-before-seen bestseller pairings of Face-Off and adds a delicious new twist gender. Eleven of the world's best female thriller writers from Diana Galbadon to Charlene Harris are paired with eleven of the world's best male thriller writers, including John Sanford, C.J. Box, and Nelson DeMille. Now, the stories are all edited by number one New York Times bestselling author Lee Child, and they feature such people as Sandra Brown and C.J. Box, Val McDermott and Peter James, uh, Kathy Rikes and Lee Child, Diana Galbadon and Steve Barry, uh, Karen Slaughter and Michael Cordia, Lisa Jackson and John Sanford, Lisa 
Scatalan and Nelson DeMille, and the list goes on. It sounds like an interesting one. It is called Matchup, and it's by Lee Child. And that's all the time we have for this month's edition of Heard Any Good Books Lately. I'm George Douglas. I hope you enjoyed the program today. If you'd like more information about how to become a patron of the North Carolina Library for the Blind and Physically Handicapped, simply Google or search NC Library for the Blind Accessible Books Division, or you can call toll-free 888-388-2460. You can also use those same numbers as and website as well to join the Friends of the North Carolina Library for the Blind and Physically Handicapped. The State Library for Accessible Books is now called. Is that it is that wonderful organization that sponsors this monthly feature on books. This program is intended for a print and visually handicapped audience. Heard any good books lately will be available right after the broadcast at our win- website, ncreadingservice.org. So long until next time.